I'm so wimpy. I sweating. It's humid and warm here. I don't know how I'm going to survive Alabama. I know Michael's still chilled. Acts 15 today. We're primarily looking at uh, 16 through 35. But we're going to try to sum everything up so far in this discussion about um, the Jerusalem Council and the question of circumcision and salvation and kind of bring it to a, a close. And uh, there's all of scriptures God breathed, but certain portions are so dense. And there's all these issues in, in Acts 15 that are so, so important. And uh, so but today we'll try to kind of kind of bring it all together. Um, so. Let's pray and then we'll read. Our Father, may we glean from your word uh, that which you intend. We bless you for opening our eyes, for giving us hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone, for cleansing our hearts by faith. Uh, May we be thus delighted and encouraged by your word to live lives of humble obedience and worship in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the word, Acts 15, 1 through 35. I'll remind you, as I do with longer portions, this is the word of God, and this is the best part of the sermon, reading the word of God. Acts 15, 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas had some of the others and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither of our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord 
and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, Although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I've entitled the message today, uh, Cleansed to Seek the Lord, which describes our state as redeemed people. Uh, What Peter said about Cornelius and his family is also true of us. That In verse 9, the Holy Spirit cleansed their hearts by faith. The Holy Spirit cleansed their hearts by faith. And that's really the question being wrestled with in this passage is how can a person be cleansed? Um, Circumcision is a cleansing rite. Dietary laws and most of the Mosaic ordinances were uh, had to do with cleansing or, or the purity of the people. So how can we be cleansed? We are cleansed by faith. And we've seen here in this passage, the decision of the apostles and elders is resounding. There's no question. We are cleansed by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Yet we see in this passage arising another question. Uh, The question that was surely behind the original is, is, we are cleansed from sin and filth, and idolatry, what are we cleansed to? What are we cleansed to? And James begins to answer this question, quoting from Amos in verse 17, that God restores the tent of David so that the remnant of the Gentiles might seek the Lord. So we're cleansed from idolatry unto the seeking or worshiping of the Lord. 
But we'll begin by looking again at James's quotation from Amos chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, which is still answering this question, how can we be cleansed? Um, two types of people answer this question two different ways, and really both types are present within our hearts if we're honest. Uh, the first way is the legalist way, and the second way is the antinomian way. The legalist either makes law-keeping the basis of salvation, or he makes laws that are not God's laws, laws that are obligatory. He makes the laws of man binding on the conscience. So either making uh, law-keeping the basis for salvation is legalism, or turning the laws of man into the laws of God is legalism. Uh, Judaizers do both. They make... Uh, law-keeping, not to mention law-keeping that no longer really applies in the New Covenant, binding a necessary means of being cleansed or saved and in order to join the people of God and enter into His worship. They say, you, you must be circumcised to be saved. The Pharisees said, you, we must make them keep the law of Moses. You have to do this. This is legalism. In debating the question, the apostles and elders have been arriving here at this clear and resounding consensus, a rejection of the legalist approach to the cleansing of the Gentiles. Instead, the Gentiles and the Jews, in fact, are cleansed uh, by faith alone. We see in verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And in verse 11, even of the Jews, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So the Bible says, spiritually, before we're regenerated, we are a corpse. The legalist says, I'll just put on a little makeup and a nice dress, try to make myself look good. I'll put on my best tux and try to make myself look good to God. It'll be just lovely. But our Sunday best and some perfume on a long dead corpse does nothing to mask the hideous sight and stench of sin before God. So no, we have to be made new. We have to be born again. We have to be washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith. The dead corpse must be brought to life. It must be washed and clothed in the robes of the righteousness of Christ to enter into the presence of God. And it is the entrance into the presence of God that's really at stake here, and that, that which James's uh, speech and quotation from Amos center around. Uh, this is the prophesied age, James says, when the restoration of David's throne and the building of the house of God take place in Christ, and, and the Gentiles are brought into full membership as worshipers in the, the, the new covenant temple of God. So James begins by applying Old Testament language in verse uh, 14. He applies Old Testament language to these new covenant Gentile Christians, showing that they've been made members of the people of God. In verse 14, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That language, a people for his name from Deuteronomy and Exodus now being applied to the Gentiles. And in verse 15, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. 
quoting mostly from Septuagint, which we learned about this morning, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint version of Amos with a few intentional, strategic, interpretive changes. Uh, James says in verses 16 and 17, quoting, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Thus far, I've just been overviewing what we've already seen, but I want to slow down here for a moment. I mentioned last week this this quotation is a bit of an interpretive puzzle, at least for me. Um, And so I spent a little more time on it and spending a little more time looking at this reference um, to me, the line of logic that makes the most sense is uh, I'm bar- borrowed heavily from G.K. Beale um, from his book about the temple. And he says that Jesus is the latter day cosmic temple ta- or tabernacle in which not only believing Jews, but also Gentiles throughout the cosmos may worship. Since all are cleansed in him and not by mosaic laws of uncleanness, they also are considered clean for worship in him as the temple. Um, so that interpretation makes sense, and we'll go through that. It makes the most sense to me. But in other words, he's saying, uh, we might ask, how and when is verse 16 fulfilled? Verse 16, after this I will rebuild, I will, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. How, when does that happen? When is that fulfilled? Is it after Judah is punished in exile and then, and then God brings them back and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the wall and and suddenly the people are back in Jerusalem after exile? Is that when this is fulfilled, when David's house is rebuilt? Uh, no, there's still a vassal state. There's no Davidic king on the throne. Even now, even with the expanded temple, Herod's temple, there's still a vassal state under Roman rule. So no, that hasn't happened yet. Or perhaps, as some would say, it might be uh, 1948 when when Israel was somewhat reestablished as a nation. But James seems to view this as already fulfilled in his day. It's already happened, as evidenced by the incoming of the Gentiles. Now, if we back up to chapter seven of Acts. Uh, this is the, the speech that Stephen gives, or the sermon that Steve, Stephen gives, a recounting of the history of Israel, the redemptive history. He says in verses 45 through 48 that David uh, found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. And then he goes on to say, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. So, so even King Solomon, his reign and his temple were not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given to David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that promise, again for, for your uh, memory, is found in 7, 11 through 13. God promises David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So two things there. He shall build a house and establish a kingdom. 
And, and it's not completely fulfilled by Solomon. And, and Stephen says, God does not live in a house made by human hands. But Jesus himself makes it clear he's the end-time Davidic king. He's the end-time temple. He himself said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Talking about himself. And he himself argued from Psalm 110. David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And who is David's Lord? Jesus claims to be the Davidic Melchizedekian priest king. He is the end time temple. He is the end time Davidic king. So all of this is part of this Davidic theme that seems to run through Acts. Um, Jesus was proven to be the Davidic son and king who would not undergo corruption because he was raised from the dead and ascended to his throne at the Father's right hand. Um, all of that to say, I know that's a bit uh, in, <laughs> complex, but uh, there's actually so much to the to the argument in it. Uh, if you want a more uh, robust version, I, I recommend Beale's book, The Temple and the Church's Mission. Uh, it's really, really helpful. But all of that to say, James seems to view the restoration of the tabernacle of David as being fulfilled already because Jesus accomplished his mission on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended to his throne at the Father's right hand. And because of that, both promises to David are being fulfilled right now, both that he would establish a kingdom and that he would build for him a house for his name. And James says, because of the, this is evident of the restoration of the, of the tent of David, that this has occurred, so too does the corresponding event of the remnant of mankind, the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord, that they will seek the Lord, that Gentiles will come into this end-time temple and worship the Lord. So all of this brings us back around to the theme of worship, to the theme of why are we cleansed? We're cleansed to seek the Lord. We're cleansed to worship the Lord. We're not cleansed to seek the Lord by law-keeping or circumcision. We're cleansed by coming to Christ in faith. When we come to Christ, we come to, to the temple, the presence of God, to the inner court. We don't even come to the outer court of the Gentiles. We come inside. Because the veil has been torn, torn we, we enter into the holy place in Christ, which is an amazing status considering the status of the Gentiles before. When this letter is delivered to Antioch, I think as much a relief as the news would be uh, that they don't have to be circumcised. I think what it says in verse 31, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is why they're encouraged, because they can see that they come into the temple, the new the end-time temple, the new covenant temple, not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ alone. And that is profoundly encouraging This theme of being cleansed to seek the Lord continues here in James's judgment. Um, because if there's one thing the people of God must do as they approach the temple of God to seek his name is to leave their idols outside. 
which I believe is the thrust of this judgment. They must, as they come to Christ, leave their idols behind. So we'll read again from verses 19 through 21 here. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So having deliberated, having heard the witnesses, um, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, they've come to a conclusion. They've settled on a judgment that no, they don't need to be circumcised. But there's these few things we want you to do. And they send this authoritative circulatory letter to the churches. We see it's a circulating letter in verse 23 to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria and Cilicia. Um, so they send it as a circulating letter because this is going to come up. I, I believe that's the point of verse 21 when they say from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. They're saying, Moses and, and this issue of the Jews is going to be everywhere. So let's send this letter everywhere authoritatively. This is going to come up some more. Um, so I just want to read again the judgment that they send, starting in verse 25. And it seemed good to us, having to come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Uh, so we see here they're... These Barnabas and Paul represent Antioch and the, the Jewish uh, Jerusalem leaders are saying they're beloved. They're, they're, it's a commendation of the Antiochian leaders who are strongly on one side of this debate. And then he goes on in verse 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas. So here also are men from Jerusalem. This is very wise. They send men from the Antiochian church and from the Jerusalem church uh, who themselves tell you will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so here this is wonderful as well. They have deliberated. They've sought the scriptures. They've sought the, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And they say, the Holy Spirit is in agreement with us. We and the Holy Spirit are convinced of this judgment. Uh, he says, We're, It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. Uh, those four judgments come off a bit odd, don't they? Like, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to keep the law of Moses, but here's these four things. It's just hard to get your head around. The real question that we're all asking is, can we have our steaks medium rare, right? And, and also the question about... But what about Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 where he says you can eat food sacrificed to idols if, it's, if your conscience is clear? So it's a conf bit of a confusing uh, injunction here. These prohibitions, they connect back to Leviticus 
17 and 18, part of the holiness code for Israelites and for sojourners who are in the land. And so James is saying, what, what is James saying? He, is he saying, you don't have to become a Jew, uh, but at least be considerate about these laws. Like, for the sake of peace, don't rock the boat. You know, don't, don't offend your brother and their sensitive conscience in the Jews, um, which is what some interpreters say is, is going on here, which I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy me. Um, the, primarily the prohibition against sexual immorality doesn't really fit that conclusion. Um, it, that's not a concession to Jews. That's just a flat out prohibition that we all agree we need to adhere to. Um, and, and it's also confusing because it's like there's these four things and is that really it? No Ten Commandments, no love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Um, how do we make sense of this? To me, it's pretty clear, again, following G.K. Beale as well as Kevin DeYoung, that the prohibitions are about leaving your idolatry outside the door. As you come to worship the, the, the Lord, leave your idols outside the door. If you have been cleansed to seek the Lord, you must leave your old ways behind. To me, it makes sense to see the first prohibition as something of a heading under which the others fit. Abstain from things polluted by idols. Remember, the purpose uh, for much of the Levitical holiness code was not to kind of arbitrarily burden the people of God. Um, It was to separate the people of God from wickedness, from pagan idolatry in the land. So, in effect, the purpose was the same then as it is here in Acts 15, to to guard against idolatry. Um, So we have these three things that are kind of examples of being polluted by idols. Sexual immorality, which of course is, is just a broad prohibition throughout the Bible, but here I think... They have an eye specifically toward cult prostitution in, in pagan temples. Um, what has been strangled, again, the Mosaic uh, ordinance was to pour the blood of, of the offering out before being eaten. And Beale here says the protocol of pagan idolatrous offerings was not to pour out the blood of the sacrifices before eating them. So if you strangle it, you're not cutting its throat open and draining the blood. And then third, uh, blood. Don't, again, blood was probably being eaten or, or drank, drank during part of the pagan worship practices, um, both in ancient Canaan and in, in the Mediterranean there. So in short, the sense here is, having been cleansed in, in heart by faith to come to the end-time temple and seek the Lord, the Gentiles need to check their idols at the door as they come in. They need to let their idols go. Which brings us kind of to the second type of person, to the antinomian person. We talked about the legalists. What about the antinomians? In answering the question, how can we be cleansed to enter the presence of God? Then antinomian answers, we are cleansed by faith and no subsequent life change is necessary. There are no binding laws on the Christian. That's the antinomian view. However, it's quite clear reading the judgment of James and the apostles and elders that the antinomian response is insufficient. In coming to Christ, the end time people, a temple of the Lord, and coming to seek the Lord, and coming 
to the people of God who are citizens of the Davidic king, we're not meant to be syncretists. Remember the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Question 44 of the Shorter Catechism asks, what does the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, therefore we are bound to keep all His commandments. Redemption has implications. So while the legalist confuses the order of operations, placing works prior and necessary, prior to and necessary for salvation, the antinomian says works are not obligatory. We don't have to obey. The antinomian confuses necessary works with meritorious works and throws the baby out with the bathwater. The antinomian misdefines legalism as an excessive devotion to obedience. At least, practically speaking, that's how it comes across. Which is silly. Like Our standard of obedience is here at very best and God's standard is here. We can never kind of fall over the top of of that cliff. It's too far away. We can't be too obedient. And I hear it all the time. I want to try to be obedient to God, but I I don't want to feel like a legalist. What, What are you talking about? Remember, legalism is not obedience. Legalism is making law-keeping meritorious for salvation or turning the laws of men into the laws of God and binding on our conscience. We are meant to be serious about obedience. We are meant to check our bales and our asherahs at the door. We are meant to be called to repent of the darling idols in our hearts, which, which supplant the affections that we're meant to have for God. We're meant to do this. We're meant to be serious about obedience, not in order to earn redemption, but because we have been redeemed. This is what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. He tells us about what we have in our salvation. He says, our, His divine power has been granted to us has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us into His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's that's the blessing we have in our salvation. And then the conclusion, for this very reason, because you have been saved, make every effort... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Being cleansed to seek the Lord. Washed in order to seek him in worship and sacrificial 
obedience. So, uh, yes, we may eat our steaks rare. <laughs> I don't believe that's the point of this passage. It's about idolatry. I was telling Paige, I, they gave me a pig last year, and I went up and I, I dispatched it with a, with a handgun. And I first thing I did was cut it open and collect the blood in a bowl, and I went home and I made blood sausage. I have a clear conscience about that. That's not the point of the passage. Um, and really, you know, if we were to encounter more of a blood sacrifice as pagan idolatry grows around us, we might have to be more wary of our conscience about some of those things. But but right now in our day, we don't have to deal with that. But sexual immorality, on the other hand, um, is a fundamental building block of the idolatry in our society. Uh, but the, the gist here is really quite simple, and it can be summed up by John's closing exhortation in First John. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So may we remember that the cleansing of our hearts for entrance into the presence of God and the Lord Jesus, who is the end-time temple, is by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Not a single work contributes to our participation in the worship of Jesus in the new, uh, new covenant temple. And at the same time, may we remember that our redemption liberates us from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, as Peter says in first Peter one, we check our idols at the door of the temple and enter into the spirit empowered lives of obedience and worship. We have been cleansed to seek the Lord. I want to leave you with Galatians 6, 14 through 16. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Amen.